Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, where does America stand in the fight for social justice and equal rights? Our panel looks at the successes and setbacks faced by African Americans and women in the political climate of our day. Playwright Pearl Clegg and CBS cultural commentator Faith Saley join our panel. Political Rewind starts now. Here we go. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have you here. I have to tell you, this conversation is already going on. (laughs) So let me bring you in on it. Uh, We're going to do something a little different on Political Rewind today. We are going to talk politics. We're going to look at at the intersection between culture and politics with two special guests who I'll introduce in a minute. Of course, Jim Galloway is here. It's Friday. Uh, he's the lead political writer for the AJC. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Dead Tree edition of the paper. And he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hey, Jim. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Um, I think we're going to just ask a few questions, and then, and then the two old gonna... white guys are going to sit back and listen <laughs> to the women talk about the issues that matter to them. <laughs> um, we're also really pleased to uh, have with us again uh, one of our favorite panelists, Patricia Murphy. Thank you. She uh, writes for Roll Call, for The Daily Beast, for Garden and Gun. Her column is now syndicated in newspapers across the country. Yes, any diner on a Sunday, you might be able to pick it up and read it during an exit test. Uh, knows Capitol Hill well, has worked for three U.S. senators, two of whom were from Georgia, yes. uh, Sam Nunn and uh, Max Cleland, uh, and now is on the journalistic side. Thanks for being here. Thanks Patricia. for having me. Um, one of Atlanta's treasures, Pearl Clegg, novelist, playwright, uh, has a show running right now at the Alliance Theater, is also with us. Pearl, it's such a thrill to have you here. Thank you so much. For Your show me. at the Alliance. Uh, how many shows have you done at the Alliance now? Is This, this like, is the eighth one. Okay. Angry, raucous, and shamelessly gorgeous. And in a couple minutes, I want to talk to you about your uh, a really wonderful conceit that you create for the show that I think plays into the theme we're going to talk about today. And Faith Saley uh, is with us, too. She has a play at the Alliance right now, a one-woman show based on a book that you wrote three-plus years ago, um, Approval Junkie. You just opened the other night. Yes, I still have that opening night smell. (laughs) (laughs) You know Faith from uh, her appearances on CBS Sunday Morning. You also have probably heard her on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And you have other connections back to public television and radio for many years. So thank you all for being here I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Uh, Let me start, if I may, uh, by, again, I said we're going to talk about the intersection of politics and culture. culture. So Pearl, let me start on the cultural side of things. Your play is about a a grand dame of theater (laughs) or performance art um, who's now on the She's in the latter years of her career. She's 65 years old in, oh. her, in her prime. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but she she became famous because she did a night, a performance piece, in which she took 
the, uh, many of the monologues, most famous monologues from August Wilson's plays, plays, uh, uh, monologues written for men, and did them herself nude on the stage. Yes. But let's make the point here. One of the reasons she did that was because August Wilson wrote his best speeches for men. Here's, here's probably the greatest pl American playwright of the 20th century, or certainly right up there. And yet he wrote for men more than the voices of women. And that's true to some extent, isn't it? Well, I think it's true, and I think that part of what that piece that she uh, created, Naked Wilson, part of that was talking about the fact that all of those great speeches were for the male characters, yeah. because those were the characters he knew best. And I remember many, many late-night conversations with other African-American women in theater, where we were talking and talking about why aren't the women characters as strong. And it dawned on me during one of those conversations that that was not his job. His job was to do exactly what he was doing. My job was to write about the women, was to make those fabulous monologues for women so that I got over being mad at him and started really focusing on the work that I was doing myself. But that's where that Naked Wilson comes out. And it, it was funny to me because when we were in rehearsal, there were all of these reviews and coming up in a minute articles about Glenda Jackson doing King Lear yeah. for the same reason that she didn't want to do Cordelia. She wanted to feel those words from King Lear rolling around in her mouth, which is exactly what my character wanted. So I felt like, okay, if it's good enough for Glenda Jackson, it's good enough for me. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, there has also been over the years, and you know that, look, you've eight plays at the Alliance Theater. You've been, it, it, your play True West, which was done way back. Flying uh, West. I mean, Flying Fly West, West was done back in, uh, when did you write? 92. 92, and in the following year, it became the most produced play in the country, right? Yes. And yet, another part of the theater that we deal with here is that it, female playwrights have traditionally had a harder time getting their work produced uh, than men. That's been an issue. So it's not just in the writers like in August Wilson, but the theater has been predisposed to male uh, writers, male directors, yes? Well, I don't think the theater has been predisposed. I think that the men who were running the theaters are predisposed <laughs> okay. to that. I think it's important to identify the, the decision-making point and the point where the decisions are made about what goes on the stage um, of American theaters, that many, many of those theaters were under the direction of men who were their artistic directors, who had much more affinity for the work of male playwrights. So it didn't have anything to do with the theater. It had to do with the men who were in charge of the institutions that were determining um, what got on the stage and what didn't. So that what had to happen was that decision-making point had to change. Or we had to have enlightened men. Doesn't have to be all women. Has to be enlightened human beings who understand that the stories of women are equally as interesting as the stories that men will tell. Okay, so I want to ask you if I can, Faith. I'm going to take just a couple minutes to ask you a couple questions. Then I want uh, Patricia and Jim for you to jump in on this. Um, so uh, one of the interesting things about Approval Junkie to me is I, I don't think uh, that it, you, you necessarily are talking about needing approval as, as a female issue. And yet, I have to think, given your background, I think you were a high school beauty queen, right? Well, that's generous, but it was a beauty and talent pageant <laughs> at, my, at my public high school, which happens in With Atlanta. North Springs. You grew up North in Spring, that's I right. was a Spartan, North Springs Spartan. That's right. We should tell people that you uh, grew up in our, in, right. our, in our community. Um, and yet, I, I would think that there is a gender 
uh, uh, factor involved in, in, in what you write about. Yes. Um, at the end of my show, I, I dedicate what I'm... I have a son and a daughter. They are young. They are four and six. And I dedicate what I'm saying uh, about what I've learned about seeking approval to my daughter. Because as I say, um, I, I think the world won't have changed much by the time you read this. And I think there will still be a million more ways for a woman to gain or lose approval than a man. I want to just say one more thing and then open it up. You did a piece for CBS Sunday Morning uh, B for uh, March, Women's Month, yes. National Women's Month yes. or whatever, uh, Women's, Women's History, History Month, Month. Yep. last year. Yep. And you made a really interesting observation. Number one, how many more times is a female Supreme Court justice interrupted during court proceedings than a male justice? Do you remember? It's like like three, like 30 more times. Yeah, it was like right? a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you point like out. Like an egregious amount. Yes, basically. and then you point out that in the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, she interrupted him, I think, maybe seven, eight times. He interrupted her like 100. 50 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And also, you know, I'm doing a story um, for CBS Sunday Morning right now that will probably air on Mother's Day, which is about the lack of female monuments in our country. And there are, I live in New York City, there are 22 real men um, who are depicted as statues in Central Park, 75% uh, of whom you would never know who they are. And there's, no, there's Alice in Wonderland is in the park. There are no real women. <laughs> and there is a statue that will be, I, we're following this story, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony will be in Central Park in 2020 to mark, um, you know, the centennial of, of the suffrage movement. Patricia, Doesn't another th say it all. Yeah, yeah well, and and another thing that Faith points out is that her children have never flown into an airport named after a woman in the That's United right. States. Uh, you know, they're not going to see many things named for women of the United States until women are in more positions of power in the United States. Um, and that's something we were thinking about, you know, how the show was going to go and what we're talking about. Um, and we're talking about culturally what's happening on the stage, men uh, making the decisions about what sells in a theater, they'll decide what's on the theater. So many times men in politics, uh, many times, forever in history, <laughs> men in politics have decided for women what their world will look like, what they'll do with their bodies, um, what what options they'll have, what opportunities they're ha they'll have. And for the first time um, in 2018, in state legislatures, in the U.S. House and Senate, these numbers are growing because women ha are being brought up to, to say, you can be anything you want, you can do anything you want. And they're actually starting to do that, but it's a lagging indicator. But there won't be monuments, there won't be legislation, there won't even be a society that, that remotely resembles the real lives of women until more women are at least equitable in that decision-making process. So, Jim, two things that come out of that for me. Number one, probably one of the um, most vivid examples of what Patricia is talking about is a photograph we've talked about on this show. It was the group of senators who supported HB 481. I think House members as well. Uh, uh, no, no, just, just, senators, just senators. It was just the Senate Republican Caucus. Uh, and out front, because she presented the bill, Senator Renee Unterman. Behind right. her? 33 white men, all Republican. Uh, it's and it, it's it's uh, uh, Patricia. You said I mean, we had uh, yes. You're right. In November uh, 18, we had a a kind of a a a, a woman's revolution at the ballot place. But you still have uh, 140 
Republican state lawmakers rule the Capitol here in, in Atlanta. Uh, of, of those, 17 are women. Uh, that's 12%. Uh, there are 96 Democrats, 55 are women. That's 57%. The Dems are doing that much, that much better. And that's why you get bills like House Bill 481. For those people who don't remember, 481 Pearl is the bill that essentially outlaws abortion in Georgia, which we know now Governor Kemp has every intention of signing. I think it's terrible. I think the fact that male legislators, male politicians, feel that they have the right to decide questions of women's health, which need to be decided between the woman and her doctor and that woman's family, I think it's outrageous. I think it's terrible. I think it's really a, a huge step back for Georgia. And I think Governor Kemp and the people that voted for that legislation should be ashamed of themselves. But you know what's interesting about this, Patricia, is that the AJC has just done a, a released a poll just uh, on Friday morning uh, in which they look at a variety of approval and disapproval numbers. And uh, Governor Kemp, even in the aftermath of his promise to sign this bill, his numbers are up. His numbers are up. He has not signed the bill yet. And I think if he did a poll... He's waiting with, until after the master. Sure. I'm, I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if he did a poll of Georgia women to say, did you know that abortion is essentially illegal in your state now? And the governor has just signed this bill that was also passed by the state legislature. I think the majority of Georgia women, frankly, would be shocked. I don't think they really know what's happened in the Georgia legislature. There's not a whole, there's wonderful local coverage here in the AJC. It's really not something, though, that I hear my, my friends and colleagues talking about. It doesn't, it's not really top of mind. I don't think they're going to know until it happens. And is, I think his approval ratings will be reflected in that. Is this a, one of those heartbeat bills? Yes. Is it yes. six weeks when yeah. most women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks? Yeah, exactly. And if you're not a woman, you don't realize that by the, by that the day of your period, it is week number one, so you're you're always like two weeks ahead of schedule. It's just it's it's impossible to understand this. Well, I talked to so I interviewed Jen Jordan for a piece that I recently did in Roll Call. Um, I have it so right much. here. So moving. Thank you so much. Uh, she went up to Washington to testify about uh, legislation that would be on the federal level for a 20-week abortion ban. Um, but she said what she was running into is that a number of men, older men literally don't know what they're talking about in the Georgia <laughs> legislature. And she talked to a gentleman and she said he's a, a kind-hearted, well-meaning Republican legislator whose wife um, is a doctor. And she said, well, do you know about this piece about uh, transvaginal ultrasounds? He's sort of... Mm. Do you know what that is? No. Have you ever talked to your wife about that, who is a doctor? We don't talk about that. And this, these are a lot of things, a lot of realities that women do not talk about, but men are legislating on. And I think that is going to continue to be a problem, especially for Georgia legislators. I do think some of them are going to lose their seats in 2020 because of this bill. You know, it's interesting, um, Jim. When Jen Jordan uh, went into the well of the Senate on the final debate on, on, on 481, uh, she gave that passionate speech, which gained her some mm -hmm. at least momentary, maybe longer than that, national attention. It certainly led her to testifying in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee the other day up there. But um, she, she felt a need uh, to apologize that she was about to use graphic language about the reproductive organs 
of women. Well, I didn't interpret it as a, an apology, but uh, I, I mean, my, my take on it was uh, she was talking to, to men in the, in, the, in the chamber and said, and said you raised this topic, not me. If you want to know how it works, I'm here to tell you but That's really yeah. kind of my point, Pearl. Uh, she was, I, I, I think Jim's right, apology is the wrong word, but she prefaced talking about a female's body with a caution to them, I didn't start this, you did, which in and of itself is strange. I think it's strange, and I think part of what, <clears throat> of what you were saying about women don't talk about this, we don't really realize what this bill is doing. I think that so many younger women take their right to choose for granted because they don't remember. And I'm of the generation, I had a friend bleed to death from an illegal abortion in a college dormitory. So that all of these questions are very real to me. And when I talk to young women, they kind of take it for granted that they'll always be able to have birth control. They'll always be able to have the right to choose. And they don't understand that this is a right that has only recently been given to them, granted to them, that we fought for this and that it can be taken away. They don't understand that and I think that's part of the real danger is that they're kind of thinking that our lives are fine everything is fine we're legally protected when they are not aware that their rights are being taken away every single day All right so um, faith the um, the Georgia legislature in 2018 election uh, did add a number of women how many we got we elected eight new women for the the house I think I'm, I'm, I may not have the exact it's number up to but 30 percent 30 percent mm -hmm. increase all right not bad Which, as a baseline that's right okay oh we all right and we got 118 new women in the u.s congress in the 2018 election but that's so, only 23 25 percent that's like it, it, it's so hard to celebrate that it's so hard for me to celebrate that until it's <laughs> at least 51 percent you know my my son who was was five at the time uh, came home during Women's History Month from his school. It's an all-boys school. He said, Mom, guess what? Just recently, there were the first two African-American female Delta pilots to fly a plane together. And I said, that's great. And he said, no, it's not. Why did it take this long? And I was like, oh, thank If you're our future, little guy, thank you. I think we would say her son is woke. He's so good. He's so <laughs> Patricia, you dealt with the issue on, on the Hill. I mean, you know what it's like. You were, there were, there were, there are days may not be great right now, but there were some pretty bad days for being a young woman on Capitol Hill during your tenure up there. Well, you know, I think it was very typical on Capitol Hill as it would have been in a law firm, on a movie set. Uh, and the, I think the Georgia legislature, frankly, was and is much worse. Um, but on the Hill and in the Georgia legislature, you have a group of people, predominantly men, making up the rules governing sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault, uh, any kind of infraction between coworkers. Um, and it was only last year that the Senate, the House and Senate have put together a rules package that even remotely resembles the rest of the United States in terms of sexual harassment. What can members not do? Um, one rule that they finally put in place is you can't use taxpayer dollars to pay hush money to a former aide. Which was happening up there all, all the time. The time yeah. All the time. All the time. I always had really wonderful bosses. I myself w never was sexually harassed. I certainly was um, probably didn't make as, as much as the men uh, in uh, in the office for the same job or the other men in the Senate for the same job. And I was told that 
repeatedly, but you were grateful for the job. And so women have always had to do this um, balancing act of I'm here, how much noise can I make until I'm not here anymore? Um, and uh, But other women I knew had terrible experiences um, on Capitol Hill, um, but it's changing. A lot of those changes are led by female lawmakers and having Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House uh, is a major, major yeah. change uh, culturally. She's been the Speaker before, um, but a lot of these rules were instituted, the improvements in sexual harassment uh, were instituted under her watch, and certainly um, under her guidance, uh, the the infractions will be punished appropriately, I think. Well, let me, just on, on that point, uh, let, let me ask you, how does the, the, the generational thing work here? Because because in November, from, you know, from, from November 6th on, through January, uh, we had this talk uh, uh, among Democrats that it, it, uh, it was it, Nancy Pelosi had had her turn, and yeah. and that and and it was time for her to move on and let somebody else take the reins, uh, which you know I think Dems now would say that they're very fortunate that that did not happen. Yes. But 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 there's got to be the, the, that uh, that uh, that cross current. I found very interesting. I thought it was really interesting, and so, and it was younger Democrats, men and women, making mm -hmm. noise about it. it's time for Pelosi to go. I think that what she did um, was to demonstrate how just how good she is at the mechanics of that job. It's a tough job. She's got a divided caucus. Multiple men before her have tried and failed to unite their caucuses. She strategizes um, like a boss. Yeah, she counts the votes. She whips her caucus, I think, that, and she whipped every single one of those votes. They didn't give it to her because yeah. she was a woman, although it would have been a bad look for Democrats after the Me Too movement. Um, but I think she also went about the work of just whipping every single vote until she had it. And you know, Jeff, you bring up the, the generations, and I think that so much of the furor that's been whipped up about Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez is, apart from politics, it's about the fact that she's a very vocal young woman. I, I think that is where a lot of the, the vitriol comes from. Pearl, you were nodding as Faith said that. I think that's very true, and I, I think that part of what is is uh, is something that's kind of over all of this that I think about, too, is that when we say women and when we say African-Americans, we're still assuming that all the women that get elected to office are going to be progressive and are going to be in favor of a woman's right to choose. <laughs> and I think that what we realize more and more is that women are not a monolithic group. African-Americans are not a monolithic group. So you can no longer say, I'm going to vote for the woman and assume that that woman is going to be someone who agrees with me. You can't say, I'm going to vote for the African-American and assume that that means they're going to agree with me, which is a big change from what, at the beginning of seeing people in these positions, we were so anxious to have a woman there, so anxious to have a black person there, that there was much less discussion about what do they stand for? What does this woman think about abortion rights? What does this man think about voting rights? Let's look at them specifically with in the context of everything they are. Well, you would make that point about the Democratic presidential field right now. In, in, in 2016, uh, you had a binary choice in the general election. You could vote for the female, Hillary Clinton, or a man, uh, uh, Donald Trump. And there are many people who say they made that decision because they didn't want to see a woman as president. I, you know, to whatever extent that's true, I don't know for a fact. But... Now you've got five women running for president. They have very different views on any number of issues. So within the Democratic field itself, 
it isn't any longer, I'm going to pick this woman because she's a woman. I don't want to vote for her because she, you've now suddenly got choice. And even that is, isn't that a, isn't that a form of progress? I think it's absolutely a oh, form okay. of progress. Mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful. I don't want us to all feel like because we're women, we all have to agree and march together. I think we have to all think about what we individually believe in, what is really important to us, and then say that if we're running for office, whatever that might be. I think it's wonderful that there are women with different points of view, but I think that it, it makes it more difficult for us to do what we used to do and what we think is still the way to go, which is vote for the woman, vote for the one who's most like you. We have to be more specific and more um, savvy than that. Right, and, and, and to a degree, the success has raised some really interesting questions here. Like, uh, for instance, uh, everybody knows, on the Republican side, it's very hard for a, a Republican woman to get through a, a, a Republican primary. I mean, this is why Karen Handel was the first Republican woman uh, Georgia has ever sent to Congress, yeah. okay? And she lasted 18 months. But now you've got this interesting situation on the Democratic side where it is going to be very hard for a man to escape a Democratic primary. This is something that John Ossoff, uh, who's contemplating a U.S. Senate rate race, is going have to, to have to really figure out. Whether, whether whether his time has actually passed. Well, the numbers of women voting in Democratic primaries are skewed female, oh, yeah. very yeah. heavily yes, female. Yes. So you've got 56, 57 percent of women voting in these Democratic primaries. So to your point, um, and also to your point, Pearl, uh, these, the, the choices that women have are broader, but they're going to have to start picking along the issues that they really uh, care about, not just I'm picking the woman because she's a woman and I trust her to do everything that I agree with because we know you don't agree with every woman any more than you agree with your boss and your mother-in-law on every single thing just because they're women. And if, and if the Democratic candidate ends up for president, ends up being a man, I cannot imagine a scenario in which he will not choose a woman running mate. What do you think? You're the you're the political no, people. No, I, I, just no, I think can't. you're right. I think so. Absolutely. I think so, and I think they would be wise to do it. Yeah. Too. I mean, I think the Times are speaking to that, and somebody like uh, Joe Biden, just throw that out. Um, it's probably one of the weaknesses he has on his ticket is that he's older, whiter, extremely male. Hey, watch likes, it. Uh, likes to close talk and uh, rub people's shoulders. You know, you're going to have to inoculate yourself with a woman, but there are so many savvy women candidates for him to choose from. Yeah. It should not be a hard job. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our first break of the show in. And when we come back, I want it. Jim, we should hear, you know, I've sort of driven the conversation with questions I'm asking. You've weighed in on some. Let's turn it over to the three of you. You tell us what you think the issues are, both in terms of what women are uh, uh, coping with right now. And Pearl, you come out of a family of father who was an activist for uh, black causes. And a mother who was also an activist. Um, and so uh, issues of race and black empowerment have always been important to you. So I want to talk about all of that and let you all drive the conversation when we come back. Uh, this is Political Rewind. We're going to take a break right now. See you in a moment. Hi, I'm Burt Wesley Huffman, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer at GPB. This spring, we're trying something new. Instead of taking the time we normally do during an on-air fun drive to ask for your support, we're giving you every minute of your favorite programs. However, as your public radio station, we rely on you to help cover the costs of everything GPB provides for you and your community. So this spring, instead of a traditional fun drive, you'll hear occasional messages reminding you of how essential your support is to GPB. 
We're calling it GPB's Stealth Drive. It's all about more of what you come to GPB for and less fundraising. No pitch breaks, just short reminders. Think about everything GPB adds to your life and give whatever amount is right for you. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. Because he's the only ever seen. <gasps> See, this is... They are continuing... <laughs> I have no control over this conversation, which is just the way it ought to be, because we are talking to three remarkable women uh, today, Jim Galloway and I are on Political Rewind, Pearl Clegg, who is a, you, you, what, five, four novels, five novels, how many Eight. novels? Eight <gasps> novels. Eight novels. Uh, the first one, which was a selection of the Oprah Book Club, right? It looks like crazy on an ordinary day. Wow, not bad. Your play, Angry, Raucous, and Shamelessly Gorgeous, is now up at the Alliance Theater. Uh, we also have Patricia Murphy, who is, uh, we're thankful, uh, <laughs> on a panelist on our show with some regularity, who writes for Garden and Gun, for Roll Call, for The Daily Beast, syndicated now in papers across country, and Faith Saley, who you see uh, on CBS Sunday Morning doing commentary. Uh, you hear her on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, on occasion, and she has a play at the Alliance Theater 2 approval junkie based on the book that you wrote. Right. Um, all right, so Pearl, let me, if I can, start with you. Um, you come out of this activist family that I mentioned before the break, and uh, you talk a lot about, it, your, some of your, you know, your more recent plays have tended to be comedies. Your earlier on, you, you wrote some, some of your works were relatively dark. They're wonderful, I mean, I was it dark? I don't think of it that way. But go ahead. That wasn't the question you were asking. I thought Blues <laughs> from an Alabama Sky now, that was, was a that beautiful, was, that was beautiful dark. play. <laughs> All right. So tell me how your work, um, how you um, incorporate themes in your work that relate to your activism uh, as someone who believes uh, that we have a lot of sexism in the world and who believes that African-Americans have a long way to go to gain the equality they that they deserve. Well, I'm, I'm in writing novels or writing plays, I'm trying not to make political points. Sure. There's always politics in there. Um, but I, what I try to do is to make sure that the political points that I want to make are coming from the characters I've created. So it's not me kind of moving these chess pieces around saying, okay, now you speak for feminism, now you speak for black people, now you, you know, but to actually find characters who can tell a story that incorporates these things. And it's not like I have to look around for that. You know, if I'm writing a story about women in the the United States, then all the political things that happen in the United States that are directed toward women or that women are involved in, which would be everything, that has to be a part of what that play is. That has to be a part of what that novel is. So that it's not like I think to myself, what political point do I need to make? What I'm always thinking is, what story can I tell that will keep people engaged with these folks for 300 pages or for two hours so that at the end they like these people? And then the political point will come if I can make a like the people. Going to um, audiences and readers through their brains is much harder than going through their heart. 
Yeah. If you can That's make right. them feel it, then they'll go with Is you. Is that the same with voters? I kind of feel like it. I think it is, which is kind of dangerous yeah. when you think about it, because mm -hmm. that's why all of that, are you likable, comes in. Yes. You know, in a character in a play, it's like, great, I want them to be likable. But it's dangerous when you're looking for a politician and you say, he's so likable, I'll vote for him. And he's really like a monster underneath. He's something yeah. else that you didn't even think about because he was so charming. Mm. Uh, I do have to point, I do have to tell one quick story that I think is fun. Uh, your, your work is usually set in Atlanta. Uh, and some of your readers who are Atlantans are very sensitive if you make a mistake here and there. So I know that at one point in, I think it was one of, I don't know if it was one of your novels or plays, but you located a Krispy Kreme donut <laughs> shop. That was a novel. Across the street from a Marta station. And you heard from a reader who said what? She said, I loved your book. It was absolutely wonderful, but you got something wrong. And I said, well, what did I get wrong? And she said, the Krispy Kreme is not across from the Marta station. It is, you know, wherever it is. But I said, that's because when I wrote the book, it was across from the Marta station. In the year it takes to get it into print, it had moved further down Cascade. And I said to her, I promise in my next book, I will have the Krispy Kreme in the right place. And I did, because the, the new one has a drive-through and my character see, drove through the see, Krispy Kreme. See, Galloway, you think you hear a lot of grief from readers who don't like what you're saying about politics. Pearl can't even write about a Krispy Kreme without getting jumped on. But it's never grief. It's never grief. It's always they're telling me with great love because they want me to get it right. Of course. Okay, if we can get back just a slightly on topic here. Sure. You, you mentioned something very nice. It's the importance of being liked. Yeah. Uh, with male politicians, it is, do I want to have a beer with them? I mean, that's, that's pretty much... What is it with female politicians? Yeah, and in more broadly, face, this whole notion I mean, of being liked, liked yeah, and being an yeah. approval junkie. It, it's interesting. Um, uh, we took the same tact. I have a I have a part in my show about my experience going on Bill O'Reilly, uh, the the show, not the man, and um, <laughs> and. Uh, and, you know, it, the, the politics doesn't matter. I was certainly the token liberal asked to come on the show. But uh, I and my collaborator, director Amanda Watkins, were not interested in, in making any political, overt political statement about my experience going on Fox News. Mm -hmm. The implicit politics for me comes from the idea that the personal is political and what I share with the audience was my experience going on the show, how that all played out. But but afterwards, I say Bill O'Reilly never harassed me, his viewers did. And we share a verbatim hateful uh, email sent to me, just just an example of one from a from a you know factor fan. And this is what happens when you are a woman in public with a voice. You mentioned that I do commentaries for Sunday morning. I receive personal attacks. They're not about my opinion. My opinion's fair game, right? They're about how I look. They're about how old I look. They're about how I have to turn the TV or the radio off when I hear your high-pitched, screechy voice. They're about, oh, you're too skinny or you're too fat. You have so many wrinkles. You need to get bangs. I do need to get bangs. I have a gigantic <laughs> forehead. But other than that... Um, Not as big I, as mine and Galloway's. Uh, all right, fair enough. But, but I would... I would lay everything I own on the fact that most men in the public eye are not attacked at least as much for the way they appear and the way they sound 
as for what they have to say. Well, and, and that's yet. all part of being likable, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Am I palatable to your eye and ear before you can even mm -hmm. attempt to absorb what I want to say to you? Yeah, yeah. And so is that a struggle for women politicians, for candidates? Then? I mean, I think absolutely, right? Didn't we learn when, when Hillary was on the road that she had to, well, I guess it's interesting when you're talking about Donald Trump because he does have a whole hair situation going on, but she had to, to spend so much of her time getting ready to appear in public just from a superficial aesthetic point of view. Mm -hmm. What's she going to wear? What's her makeup going to look like? And who's going to do her hair, right? I mean, I, I, think, I think that matters with the way we see these women politicians. We had a whole big story about how Amy and I, Klobacher? Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Ah, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, <laughs> you know, what she did with her comb. That she ate a sa you, oh. you don't know the story, Jeff, how she ate her yeah, salad she ate it, yeah, yeah. It was like... Mm -hmm. It was part of that whole body of stories, as you know, Patricia, about a staff complaining about how difficult yes. a boss she was to work for. Yes. Which apparently um, is true. Well, it is true, but there's a special genre of journalism yeah. about how awful ex-female boss is on Capitol Hill. Um, and it uh, had been uh, Senator... Uh, Mikulski from Maryland. There were legendary stories about how she threw a phone at a staffer. Mm. No, it happened. Yes, it didn't. Um, there are plenty of men who are really terrible bosses on Capitol Hill and in any workplace, but I think the female bosses tend to get the brunt of it because they have to be both authoritative and well-liked at the same time. Um, and I think that in politics, it's a struggle. I think that in life, it's a struggle. I think that the reason you're uh, book and play have such resonance is because every woman probably struggles with being an approval addict because you're sort of taught that's what works for you. That's what works for you. Smile school, more. Smile more. And you're, if you're a politician on the stump, you're upset, you're angry, you're disgusted about what's happening in the world. It's very hard to be well-liked at the same time. And I think that's a balancing act women are having to do right now. Jim, I, of course, don't have any personal experience of what Amy Klobuchar's staff has gone through. Apparently, she was very difficult at times to work with. But what was troubling to me about that story was you and I have both covered a lot of men in politics. Uh, we can name some of them. Bill Clinton had a ferocious temper and mm. screamed at his staff with some regularity. White Fowler, U.S. Oh, senator oh, here, yeah. was very hard to work with. We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about uh, men in office who were difficult bosses. No, because men were supposed to be tough. Yeah. No, they were supposed mm -hmm. to. They, 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 uh, tyranny was was is, is is not such a bad word, if you're if you're a, a male boss. I think another wrinkle for female politicians, and especially as we're seeing more and more moms who are running for office, um, and even women who are unmarried uh, running for office. I uh, was listening to Terry Sewell recently. She said the number one question she has gotten since she started into politics is. Why aren't you married? When are you going to get a husband? Wow. Um, and this is a woman from Selma, represents Selma, went to Princeton, Rhodes Scholar, just an incredibly brilliant woman. And the question for her, and it's more, she said it's not meant to be sexist. They're really worried about her. Like, but what? when will you get married? Um, and so the choices that women are making with their lives, are they moms? Where, where are your kids? Who's taking care of your kids? This is sort of a whole extra layer that I think younger women in politics are facing that men like Beto O'Rourke can just laugh off and get kind of get away with. I was interested to read Pearl, that when the big influx of women members of Congress came in uh, it, in the beginning of 2019 for the new Congress, uh, they had to make some changes in the physical 
uh, layouts of the, the, the Capitol, they had to add a baby changing room because there were young mm. mothers now serving in Congress. We should you, be thrilled. You, yeah. They just added a ladies' uh, restroom, yeah. by the way. That's right. Did they not have to, did, did they not change the, the rules of the House to allow a baby on the yes. floor? Mm -hmm. That was just last year. Yeah. Because they were nursing mothers. I was mm -hmm. doing a story on first gentlemen, and I interviewed the first gentleman of Rhode Island. The governor of Rhode Island is Gina Raimondo, an, an, an old uh, classmate of mine, um, not that old, but when I was there, I was still breastfeeding my youngest child, and because there was a female governor, they had installed the most glorious breastfeeding room <laughs> in exactly. the capital, of, in Providence, yeah. and unfortunately, that's remarkable. It, that should be everywhere, especially when there are so many politicians, so many male politicians who are talking about family values. Yeah. Let me let me uh, uh, ch ch change the subject again, because I said I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on, on from all of you on what the big issues are right now. Pearl, uh, here we are in April of 2019. We're already in the second quarter of 2019. Um, when it comes to social justice issues, um, what 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 are you most right now? focused on, concerned about, whether it's uh, uh, women or African-American empowerment, where, where do, what are the things that, that uh, you would love to see us work on? I'm concerned about um, a woman's right to choose women's health issues very much. Um, I'm concerned about uh, voting rights and suppression of voters. And I'm concerned about uh, immigration. I'm concerned about the fact that we have a country that is prepared to take babies from their mothers and put them all in cages. I'm very concerned about that. And I think that part of what we have to do is to not be overwhelmed by how awful some of these things are because what happens is we look for a minute and then we look away because we don't want to keep looking mm -hmm. and we have to train ourselves to keep looking what does it mean that voters were in every way um, discouraged from voting in the state of Georgia because Stacy was in that race and because Governor Kemp was the person in charge of the race he was running in I think that's that's something we have to be concerned about definitely all the things we've been talking about with women's health. We have to be concerned about that. I've got granddaughters. I don't have to worry about all of those questions with the urgency I did when I was 25, but my grandbabies will, and I want them to have the right to control their bodies. And I want us to do something fair and humane and compassionate about immigration. You know, we should point out, uh, as you talk about the politics of today, uh, that you are a piece, a little piece, of a very big milestone in Atlanta politics. You were Maynard Jackson's press secretary during the campaign as well as once he took office, right? Yes. So you worked with the first African-American mayor of I the did. city of Atlanta. And that was the toughest job I ever had. He wasn't a mean boss, <laughs> no. but he was, you know, very willing to call you up at five o'clock in the morning and say, did I wake you? Yeah. And I was a, a, a nursing mother and I would say, no, of course you didn't wake me. It's like, of, of course calls. you did. Right. Because he would call you. And we were, we were trained to say, no, Mr. Mayor, what can I do for you? And but it was, did he make you clean his comb after he ate? No, he was not that. And we knew if he was calling us at five, he had been upset three mm -hmm. so that we didn't feel that he was asking us to do more than he than was he doing was. but that was his entire life and some of us were 25 27 years old we also thought we could do that job and have other lives and what we realized very quickly is that you can't it's like theater it takes up everything and you have to be very conscious of making space for the people that you love for your children for your partner 
for whoever that is, because otherwise you'll end up at City Hall from before it opens to after because you're devoted to your boss. Theater, you'll end up there all the time because you want your show to be great. And it's that, that balancing act that we have to do. All right. I want to get another break. And when we come back, Faith, we should ask you that question as to what the thing, issues are that you're concerned about right now. And we should point out, uh, Pearl, because we always like balance uh, when we have it on the show, that uh, you worked for Maynard Jackson, who uh, was a proud Democrat. And uh, so you share some of those liberal values. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was way to so the left of we, Maynard uh, Just to our, for our, our <laughs> listeners out there who uh, know that we try to you know, find balance here in, you know, in the show, uh, we have Republicans come on the show who think that Brian Kemp's doing a pretty good job. I'm sure they do. And I think they're absolutely wrong. Okay. Let's do this. Let's take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Faith Saley about the issues she's concerned about right now. This is Political Rewind. Support GPB now at 800-222-4788 or gpb.org and receive tickets to see best-selling author David Sedaris before they go on sale to the public. David Sedaris will be at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on November 20th and the Classic Center in Athens on December 4th. You'll also join us for GPB's pre-show reception. Call 800-222-4788 or give online at gpb.org. And thanks. White and pink clouds of cherry blossoms are one of the hallmarks of spring. And we owe their popularity in the West in part to an intrepid English naturalist. Amira Flato on Science Friday will meet Collingwood Cherry Ingram. Plus, how do astronauts' genes respond to a year in space? It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Don't miss it. Join us for Science Friday this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Faith Saley, uh, let me do a quick plug before we ask you the question. Your show, Approval Junkie, as we said at the beginning of the show, opened just the other night. Okay. It's up at the Alliance until? Until April 28th. April 28th, and there are some tickets. Still there are available. some tickets, yes. Pearl Clegg show, uh, angry, uh, raucous and gorgeous, shamelessly gorgeous. <laughs> if you're listening to us on the radio live right now, it's you've got until Sunday night. If you're watching on TV, you've got till Sunday night, too. But that means only one more performance for you TV viewers, Pearl. All right, Faith, uh, the issues that worry you most right now. I echo Pearl's concerns. Um, I would also add, just because I um, fairly recently became a mother in my 40s, I think um, I think Elizabeth Warren is doing the most about parental, paid parental mm -hmm. leave, which I think is essential. Uh, before the break, Pearl was talking about how theater can become all-consuming, and this, this opportunity to do a one-woman show has taken me away from my family and my yeah. young children, but I'm so lucky. I have the support of, uh, of a, a babysitter, an incredibly supportive husband. The kids came down with the babysitter, and what is important to me to demonstrate for my children is that mom doesn't work because she just needs to make money. Your mother works because I want to do something meaningful in the world besides, in addition to being your mother. I think it is essential that my children see working mothers all the time. I want my children to go to school with the children of feminists. Mm. Um, because that, and so those kind of um, 
political programs are important. We have to make it possible for women to be both mothers and to make a meaningful living. So that's essential to me. I also think uh, that there needs to be a really big cultural conversation around what everybody is calling toxic masculinity. Because having a young son and a young daughter, I, it's so strange. We give, we give girls in our culture at least at least in in the the social circles i'm in so much empowerment my daughter knows she can be anything and my son is always telling me how lucky girls are girls girls get to <laughs> why don't they make that sequence shirt for for boys mommy so i buy him one but the message for girls is that you can be a unicorn you can be a surgeon you can be an astronaut or you can be a ballerina but we're not giving our boys the same message that you can be everything and you can feel everything. And our political leaders are not demonstrating how the strength of vulnerability mm -hmm. and kindness and compassion. You know, Patricia, the issue, for instance, uh, Faith talked about child care at the beginning. Uh, we, we should point out that that is not necessarily at all a partisan issue. I mean, it was, it was Ivanka Trump who uh, really, at the beginning of her father's uh, tenure, really wanted to promote uh, a, a, a bill that would uh, open doors for child uh, uh, child care for families across the country. Yes, um, I will say though those doors remain closed. Yeah. Um, I am skeptical, doubtful, and I would say if I had to list uh, what I'm most concerned about on a policy level personally, it is the issue of child care. It is having young children um, and just having a scenario. Particularly, this is I think when it when the wage gap comes into question, why it's so important for yep. young women to make as much as their male counterparts when they're younger because when you are married, the partner that makes the most has the precedent in who gets to be working, who gets mm -hmm. to go out of town, who yep. comes and goes as they want to. Usually the man makes more and the woman makes less and the woman's career begins to kind of fall away. It just is the reality because people do the math. Someone's got to raise these kids, you know, and they're <laughs> wonderful and they're lovely and they're a gift. But women's careers, and I see it happen again and again, their career, um, it's a real struggle not to let it fall by the wayside. And the lack of affordable childcare is the reason. It's because women have to work a job to pay for childcare. There have been weeks when I have made less than the babysitter, you know. Thankfully now I make more than my babysitter because she works less than I do actually. Um, but it's a real struggle. There is no policy prescription in place for women with children the way there are that for people who want to get a mortgage, people who want to start a small business, somebody who wants to start a nonprofit. We have entire policy prescriptions for how to make that possible. But I, again, I think because it's mostly men and many well-meaning men who unfortunately just don't get it. They don't know the reality of women trying to work and have kids at the same time. Jim? Okay, I'll, I'll toss in one more, all right? Okay, and we go back to the state capitol here, where, where you've, got, you've got a Republican. One of my deepest fears, uh, really, for the, for the last 20 years has been a kind of a Georgia drifting into a racially polarized political situation mm -hmm. where you have all whites on one side, they're all Republican, you have all blacks on the other side, they're all Democrats. But I think it's equally dangerous if you start having a, 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 a gender polarized political system where you have all the women 
on the Democratic side and none of them on the Republican side. I think that's you just think that's as a dangerous. Danger? I, yes, I, I, Georgia, I do. I yes, I do. I think it's a danger nationwide. Everywhere. Uh, I think the voices of Susan Collins, of Lisa Murkowski, they are so essential because they're Republican women and they are moderate women. I think they take a really broad view of policy, a really nuanced view of policy, and they give other conservative Republican women someone to look up to, support, and emulate. Um, but when you have a president who is... It makes it very hard for Republicans. It makes it very hard for Republicans to attract female yeah, voters. Yeah, but some of this, look, it precedes <sighs> President Trump, clearly. It does. But I mean, wasn't sort of Trump voted in by suburban white women? Isn't that like, wasn't that like the big takeaway? Well, I mean, it is certainly true that suburban... <laughs> and black women voters talk about that a lot. So, Pearl, let, let's, in, in terms of that, in the same way that, that, Republican, that um, uh, uh, Republicans have had trouble attracting uh, African-American voters, they're having a terribly difficult time. And, and there, there are Republican women who come on the show and say this routinely. They're having a terribly difficult time recruiting Republican candidate, female Republican candidates it's, to run for office. it's because of the policies of the Republican Party. It's not because people mysteriously say, I don't think I want to be a Republican. It's because <laughs> the Republican Party and the people that are at the top levels of the Republican Party in our state and in our country have the most awful positions on most issues that we've been talking about. But, but it's about. a circular argument, isn't it? Jim, if you, you're not going to change your policies if you don't have women of power in your party pushing for change. If you have, and if, if, you, if, you have if you have a Republican party that's only male, yeah. and yet, it, and, and it is still in power, then you're going to have bills like House Bill 40, 481 come up. You had the 4, 481 passed through the Senate uh, and through the House in Georgia because there were not enough Republican women in those Republican caucuses and those private discussions to say, no, you're not going to do this. And the uh, irony, are we just giving and, up on enlightened men, though? Again, we we're making men this like women's your responsibility. <laughs> right. exactly. We're waiting for your son so to grow that's up. Right. He can't that's right. That's yet. too long, but, but, but that's exactly right. Where are, I mean, what where about are the progressive the people men? Like my husband, right. right. Patricia, I haven't had a chance, and we're starting to run short on time to ask you the big issues right now that you see as you look ahead. Well, I would say uh, a system of child care that, is, uh, that oh, you supports did say young that, moms. Didn't you? okay. Yeah, I really okay. do. Not young, I'm not that young, you know. But that's supports moms with uh, young children because it, you, you find um, the reality is that your chance to have children is typically at the zenith of your career when you can really yeah. hit the gas and take uh, off. Yeah, and it's just, uh, right. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be the thing that holds women back, uh, including running for politics. You cannot run with young children without making some really tough choices that men don't have to make. Thank you for answering that for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that, and I'm, I'm always concerned about this, but it never comes up first in my mind when we talk about issues. None of us said climate change. And we're talking no. about children and we're gonna leave them a world that is so polluted they can't live in it. So that I would like to add to my list of three things mm -hmm. that I'm very concerned about climate change. And which, Jim Galloway, as we watch the 2020 cycle really start to ramp up, is clearly among young voters going to become mm -hmm. a crucial issue in uh, both Republican and Democratic Party Yeah, uh, and you've got, you've got Republicans in Georgia who are exceedingly worried about that, that it's, that it's going to lock them out of a, a generation. A generation Buddy Carter of down on the coast uh, yeah, has, he has been... He has admitted that climate change is real. 
And, and Wait, so they're worried that climate change is going to be the issue on which they can't win, or they're worried about climate change, these Republicans? We have uh, Jim saying that we're, we're seeing a growing awareness among Republicans that there is such that a thing. An awareness. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's it. We're out of time for uh, today's show. Uh, we're not, I guess we solved we're all those problems. Yeah, you took care of everything. <laughs> Pearl Clegg, angry, raucous, and shamelessly gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, Faith Saley, you approval junkie. Thank you, Patricia I think Murphy. you're over it. I think you're over it. <laughs> I love I'm okay now. Jim Galloway, I'll see you again on Monday at 2 o'clock for another edition of Political Rewind. Thanks all of you back there uh, listening to us or watching us on TV for being with us today. See you again Monday at 2.